arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Now look, we're going to get the answer sooner or later. How about it? What were you doing with this ring in your pocket? Now let me tell you, young fella, I don't know what's bothering you, but whatever it is, we're going to find it out and get it through your head. You're in a bad spot. If you're not interested in helping yourself, then neither am I. Now the monkey's on your back. You're going to have to help scratch it off. Now get with it. What's it all about? All right, let's have your driver's license. Come on, get it out. Gordon John Miller, 2055 Malcolm Avenue. Do you have a phone listing for 2055 Malcolm Avenue? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 32192. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Thanks a lot. Put the phone down. You ready to tell us? No, I won't tell you. Any way you want it, Gordon. No, you can't call me. You can't. I won't let you. All you right, can't. take it easy, will you? They don't know. They can't tell you. Give me the phone. You Sit down. Sit down that chair. If you won't give us the answers, we'll find somebody who will. The sooner you get it through your head, you're not here on traffic ticket, the better. You're gonna stay in that chair till we get ready to book you. I'm sick of treating you like a baby. They can't tell you. They don't understand. They can't tell you. I wanted to insert a Jack Webb, a.k.a. Joe Friday, interrogation. I don't know what the odds are for the suspect to have been named Gordon, but if the shoe fits, Webb is a little tough on this Gordon. Garrity and Framed is more determined and persistent over the years. Her team has worked obsessively to nail Gordon Butts for the murder of Walter Thornton. Butts' cleverness in his nefarious mind holds a very competent investigator at bay. Even Joe Friday wouldn't have too much luck with Gordon Butts, because Butts nicks the evidence and is willing to lie like hell. Butts' guilt and fear slowly dissipate, but Garrity doesn't give up. Gordon Butts moves into his new life. Don't try and understand Gordon Butts. Just watch him slowly self-destruct. Episode 3 of Framed by Robert P. Fitton continues now. Framed by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 12. Juan just stared at the frozen picture of Butts on the monitor. What's this about numbnuts confessing to the Thornton murder? He did, said Garrity. We'll get your copy of the file, Warren. You were right, Maureen. Which makes it all the worse, she said, taking in the cigarette smoke. I never suspected him then, said Garrett. Guy is a scumbag. A murdering scumbag. Well, let's see what else is on this file, said Garrity, and she clicked the mouse. I planned to call Connie, and it even picked out a payphone near the highway to do it. But then when it sunk into my skull that Walter Thornton was really dead, I folded. I had just gotten through more questions with you, Garrity. We were in a parking lot, a parking lot smeared with packed bluestone next to a restaurant called The Lazy Morning. 
and you told me Walter Thornton shouldn't have died. He should have remembered his nitroglycerin pills. I had no guilt as I stood there and imagined myself dumping the pills down the storm drain earlier that morning. The picture was fresh in my mind as I looked you in the eye. How long have you worked for Thornton, Mr. Butts? Gordon. Uh, about a year. I found a cigarette and I offered one to you, but you said you had kicked the habit. Walter hired me last year. Has he a family? Uh, just his wife. We all live on Long Island. Took me three attempts to light the cigarette. You slowly looked up from your yellow line notepad. I had struck a nerve. How long have uh, you lived on Long Island, Mr. Gordon? Only a few months. I uh, got a condo so I could be near the main warehouse. You were on to something, Garrity, but you just couldn't say anything. I guess you needed facts so the scenario would stand up in court. Should have invested in a car. You had many problems with that car? What is that, a Galaxy 500? Torino. Why would the car just go dead out there? You knew the phony wire routine. My voice shook, but I don't think you detected the strain. I don't know anything about cars. Just started rough at our last stop. It seemed to be running okay. Last stop? Yeah, an account. Rudy Blanchard, back in Dillard. You kept looking me in the eye, because with good cause you scribbled Rudy Blanchard's name on your pad. I blurted out his number and address. So you pulled over in the middle of nowhere after seeing this guy Blanchard, and your car dies. It stalled. It wouldn't start. Why did you stop? Walter wanted to see the rural countryside in spring, but the car died. You wrote something down and we're probably going to mechanically check it out. Where do you get your car service, Gordon? <laughs> I don't. That's uh, no doubt why the thing stalled. I see. You looked toward the tow truck swung diagonally in front of the restaurant and then over to the Torino alongside. You looked at your notepad, turned like a mechanical robot and wandered back to the kid who drove the truck. I knew what you'd be asking him and I knew what he'd tell you. He'd just say the alternator probably wasn't charging the battery right. Or perhaps the battery went dead. Or maybe you knew about the loose wire trick, which made the entire episode even more frustrating. And you say Mr. Thornton would not call for help and started walking? Yes, ma'am. You knew I had killed Walter Thornton by putting stress on his heart, just as if I had pulled a trigger. I could see how you looked at my car and how you shook your head at the driver. You were upset, Garrity, and when you came back your jaw was rigid when you talked to me. I could feel the tension. You told me you'd be calling. I nodded and shook your hand, but as I went to the car, the battery fully charged. I knew you were the type of cop who would follow down every suspicion, every lead. You'd look at every change in my own expression. You'd watch my actions as I would study you. Or perhaps it was guilt speaking on how I sized you up. But I knew as the car door thumped shut, I had to live with the responsibility of having killed a man. Cigarette hanging out of my mouth, I crept in the car out the gritty lot, and the blue stones crushed under my tire. I gripped the wheel lightly as if I was simply leaving after having a bite to eat. It's much easier, Garrity, so much easier when you're talking about anything in theory. You let your mind rationalize everything you're going to do, and you lock out the ramifications. You only see the main goals of your actions. I saw the company. I saw Connie. I saw Tanglewood. Now in the mirror, 
I saw you eyeing the car as I escaped up the turnpike ramp. I didn't count on you, Garrity. You were one of those things I kicked out when I was rationalizing the crime, and I asked myself out loud why a stickler like you had to be on this case. You had to be asking yourself why the hell Gordon Butts decided to bring Walter Thornton back to the turnpike via the scenic route and not on a faster road. I had given the explanation I had memorized, how Walter Thornton, his body now stiff in the back of the county medical examiner's wagon, wanted to see Blanchard, and then the countryside. I don't think you bought the story. I approached the phone booth 16 minutes later off another exit, wanting to carry out the fantasy still percolating in my mind. I was supposed to pull into the little Red Roof shopping plaza, park the car, and dial Connie's number. I would tell her I had bad news. A trite line, but the only thing I could say on such an occasion. Connie, Walter is dead. His heart finally gave out. My car broke down. I swung into the plaza, moving only a few miles an hour, near the phone under the aluminum overhang. A few people glided down the sidewalk along the store windows. I stared at the phone, but I continued to the highway ramp. Part of me still had the guts to turn around as I looked in the rearview mirror at the phone. I killed Walter Thornton, Garrity, and I wasn't as cool as I thought I was going to be. I wasn't going back to that phone now or a hundred years from now. I was just too scared. I shook all the way back to the city, smoking an assembly line of cigarettes as I fixated on the rest area storm drain. Did you have the insight to go back there? Had Walter Thornton mentioned anything to Blanchard about stopping at that rest area? I didn't think he did. I was only away from them for a minute when I used Blanchard's bathroom. Now I convinced myself that you would never know about the rest area. You would never know that Walter Thornton's cell phone was resting at the bottom of a blue dumpster. It wasn't guilt that was plaguing me. It was wrenching fear. I crossed through New York City at rush hour. The city looked clean after all the snow that winter. I gazed down Manhattan from the bridge and stared at the cold water. I had finally done it. Carried out my plans. You'd figure out the rest area deal, Garrity, and you did. But you were too late. With the rain and snow and the trash pickup, it was all over. You snooped around there a few months later. The nitro had been long since washed away. I thought about that nitro. Every night it rained for the next couple of weeks. I checked the weather channels and watched every storm front approach the area. And when it rained, I knew all traces of that drug would be taken away. I would have bet good money that that dumpster was emptied before you got to it. But what lingered in my mind, Garrity, was whether somebody had scavenged through that rubbish and retrieved the phone before it was hauled away. Unlikely, I finally told myself after months of anguish. Over the years, all the possibilities about getting caught, and you especially finding out about my crime, would come in waves, usually late at night or early morning when I was alone. But the wave would dissipate because I had remained untouched after my act. I placed a call to Eddie's Auto and told Eddie I needed a new alternator for the Torino ASAP. Within two hours, I had the old alternator on my front seat and then pitched it into a convenience store dumpster. I looked over my shoulder and smiled. When I entered my condo, my eyes shot over to the flashing red answering phone machine. I was convinced Connie was on that machine checking up after her husband's death and wanting to know the details since I was the one in the middle of it all. 
I was the one who brought Walter Thornton on the forced march. As I retrieved each of the seven messages, I realized she had not called. I went to the kitchen and pulled out a bottle of bourbon and started drinking. I drank all afternoon, looking for reports of Walter Thornton's death, but it was not important enough to make the TV news. I tried the radio later that afternoon and still heard nothing. As I drank myself into a liquid frenzy, I wanted at least some recognition of the deed. Someone should call. Even you, Garrity. The phone line was silent. I staggered into the frigid air on my balcony and gazed across the twinkling lights toward Tanglewood. What was going through Connie's head right now? Why hadn't she called? Was she planning her husband's funeral? Was a part of her elated upon hearing the news of her husband's death? She owned the whole shooting match now, Garrity. I never thought about jumping five floors to the concrete sidewalk, but I did kick the patio furniture as if I was in a kung fu movie, and my drunken tirade continued into the house. I punched the walls viciously. There were still patches along the living room plaster, now spackled and painted, but on that night the wall looked like a 15 by 7 piece of Swiss cheese. I yelled, and I yelled at myself and at Walter Thornton, and I didn't care if anyone heard me. Why hadn't Connie called? We were so close. What if she had dumped me now that the thrill of the affair meant nothing? She could take her money and have any man. Or did she know or did she suspect I had marched Walter Thornton down some isolated road in central New Jersey? You'd be talking to her. I suddenly knew she could sink me. I didn't even give it any consideration before another one of those rationalizations. All she had to do was mention her husband's cell phone. And you could check on that, Garrity, as you did. In less than a week, you knew Walter Thornton's cell phone model and number. You and your guys were calling the number and trying to triangulate the location. I lucked out. Walter Thornton left the phone off. Something I hadn't bothered to check when I ditched it. It was off. At the bottom of some landfill. Just like the alternator. Gone. A dead end. By 10 p.m., I couldn't speak coherently. I was sprawled across the sofa and the TV blasted out a non-titled boxing match that I had trouble following. The phone rang and with the empty bottle in my hand, I nearly fell over as I tried to stand. I stumbled across the room but stopped near the wall phone. I stared at the phone as it rang again. I was convinced you were calling, Garrity. I thought you had located the cell phone or maybe the nitro case in the woods. I didn't answer the line. I leaned over a chrome kitchen chair and struggled to place the bottle on the table. The machine kicked in and I listened to bits and pieces of my sober answering machine greeting. When Connie's voice filled my kitchen, I scrambled into the chair. Gordon, when you get in, call me. That was it. No editorial comment on Walter Thornton's death. No grief or anguish at losing her husband. The line clicked off and I banged the table. Killed your husband, Connie? Killed a man. I left his nitro in a storm drain. I dragged him in the middle of nowhere so he could be pushed to the limit with no way to call for help. He's dead. Walter Thornton is dead. Framed by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 13. Juan Arbenez leaned forward. I hate this mother. Well, I'm not too thrilled with him right now, either, said Garrity, a new cigarette pinched between her fingers. 
She stared into Butts' watery eyes on the screen. How are we supposed to book him if we don't know where he is? Garrity exhaled. I don't know. He could be anywhere. I'm sure there's more to this. Through the mountain of bright graveside flowers, I saw one of your men stuck between the dark suits. I recognized the guy from the breakfast place in New Jersey, but only glanced at him. Everyone sobbed at the grandiose spectacle produced to commemorate Walter Thornton. Connie maintained a rigid facade with no sign of tears. People talked openly about her courage. I knew better. I had regained control of my head now. I hadn't had a drink since the murder binge and had most recently spoken with Connie at Tanglewood before the funeral. She never asked about the side trip across New Jersey or the cell phone or the nitro tablets. She never blamed me for making Walter Thornton hike along that road until he keeled over and died. And her solid exterior remained intact, operating in a business-as-usual mold, handling company affairs, taking over. She knew the truth. Only she was in control of both her emotions and her actions. And I understood right away she wasn't going to ditch me. Oh, we didn't make love for a long time, and we didn't have those happy and silly restaurant dates for an equally lengthy period. But as Connie gradually and adeptly remolded her dead husband's company, she placed Gordon Butts at the center of the expansion and needed me at least at that level. She first held my hand exactly 11 days after they lowered Walter Thornton into the ground. We stopped by the grave and she perfunctorily placed obligatory flowers across the dirt rectangle. I felt her emotion was genuine, or as genuine as Connie could be. From that preliminary gesture, we went to lunch at an outside cafe I had never been to. She finally smiled. Maybe she figured enough time had passed. A detective Maureen Garrity called me, Gordon. I tried not to flinch, and I didn't. After I first awakened with a pounding hangover after my binge, I developed the first layer of an impenetrable armor. But I was afraid your phone call to Connie might dent or even puncture that armor. She wanted the name of Walter Thornton's doctor, where and what pharmacy he had purchased his nitro tablets, and how long he had been diagnosed with heart ailments. I knew you were moving in the right direction, Garrity, but didn't think you'd ever prove anything. By now, the cell phone was buried, and the nitro had melted into the storm drain system. Maybe there was a residue of chemicals in the bottom of the catch basin, but I doubted it. With a smug arrogance, I curled my upper lip. Well, it sounds like a thorough investigation. Yeah, they wanted everything in place for their reports. She seems like someone in love with details. Details are no good, Gordon, unless you can make something out of them. Amen. I let my cigarette smoke rise up from the table to the outside air. Her eyes possessed a cocky self-assurance, a cognizance that I had killed her husband, and she knew that I was aware of her knowledge of the crime. Yet she played this delicate verbal game as if it were an enjoyable ritual. All aspects of Walter's death will be in her report, but I haven't got time, actually. We have a company to run, Gordon. Continue Walter's legacy to bigger and better things, despite Detective Garrity. Well, Garrity was very helpful to me. She called the tow truck for my car that day. It occurred to me that you called the tow truck, Garrity, to check out the car and why it hadn't started. You wanted to see if that battery was really dead. And it was. Eventually, 
You probably became convinced I tampered with the alternator wires, but you never proved anything. You even checked the repair tag at Eddie's Auto, but the alternator, as I later told you, was gone. When Connie looked me in the eye and reached for my hand, I saw a woman who was ready to forget her dead husband. Her eyes regained the sparkle of the evening dinner at the Milton house. I knew the past was accelerating away when she brought up my new car. I sat there thinking that I might have actually gotten away with killing Walter Thornton. She wanted me to expand her business and keep me around for her personal life. Your BMW will be ready Monday morning, Gordon. I can't let you be driving around in a car that isn't reliable. Besides, in your new capacities with the company, you'll have to watch your image. New capacities? As vice president of sales, of course. What did you think I meant? Oh, nothing. I had always hoped for more, but Walter Thornton had only been dead two weeks. She couldn't pull anything so outrageous so soon. With the purchase of the new BMW, she could use the excuse of my car contributing to her husband's death. But being made company vice president of sales was extraordinary. Your role will change as the company changes. I had killed Walter Thornton, and she gave a tacit consent. The most remarkable thing I had garnered from this murder was how Connie rolled with it, accepted it, built upon it, and used me to go forward. It was raw ambition, as blatant as my own plans, but reflective of her initial reasons for landing Walter Thornton. Oh, I learned her story as time went by, Garrity. I learned how she showed up on the scene and reeled in Walter Thornton years before. Yet she always housed quiet subtleties, but the burning desire to have it all raged inside like a controlled nuclear reaction. She could hold the power, but didn't need bold phrases, nor did she need to put down the subordinates. She never went into a rage or even raised her voice. She moved quietly through the waters of life, steadily and purposefully taking everything she had ever wanted and leaving an invisible wake behind. My new office was larger than the entire warehouse offices in northern New Jersey where I first met Connie. I had gone from nothing to a new wood panel deal with high ornate ceiling squares and hanging globe lights on chains. The carpet was red, short, and tight, and my mahogany desk was placed in front of a pleated span of white drapes. I had two PCs and a laptop, and another computer in my Tanglewood office above the garage. Not bad for some on-the-road salesman whose only mechanical instrument was a malfunctioning calculator. I hijacked Walter Thornton's long conference table during the summer, and added a couple of camcorders with a monitor and a DVD player on the side table. I loved shooting videos of the sales meeting and kept the files on record. Gordon Butts had come a long way from that snowy night in New Jersey. I was convinced now that Connie was aware that I'd be in that northern New Jersey warehouse that evening in the course of my run up the coast. She was ready, working diligently with the books and pretending she didn't even see me come in the office. But my entry was the grand entry, the inception of events, thrusting Connie where she wanted to go. She had smiled at me as if I was just an employee popping in on a snowy afternoon. Inside, she was ready to pounce. I don't hold that against her. It brought me where she wanted me to go. Willing participants never bitch, do they, Garrity? I had five phone lines and used them all when I wasn't cruising the internet. She made sure two cell phones, extra batteries, and two lines were at my disposal immediately. I must say, 
I fit the part. I took control, Garrity, in a way I never could have seen. But she saw it. She saw abilities in me. Things evident to someone of her intelligence and sophistication. She knew her direction exactly. The chances I took and the ruthlessness I displayed were qualities Walter Thornton never had. I was aggressive. Maybe thoughts of the murder or guilt drove me. But I seized control and squashed the competition by intimidation as well as caressing all vulnerable accounts. I'd lowball the price below cost and then raise the supplementary items. In six months, our business soared 152%. An amazing statistic. See, I wasn't just a petty murderer or some lowly little road salesman. I was a man thrust into a new position where I wielded and developed power on a daily basis. And my love life wasn't bad either. Things didn't pick up personally with Connie until two months after Walter Thornton's death. In fact, it was a meeting with you, Garrity, that spawned a wild couple of months. You had scheduled an appointment to speak with Connie at Tanglewood. It was a sultry June afternoon, one of those days where the haze hung over the leaves, and it's difficult seeing the marina in the ocean. You wanted to speak about everything you had learned, but in retrospect, you wanted to divulge what you knew. You arrived at 3 p.m. Connie wore her white tennis clothes and cooled off from a match with one of her friends on the side court. I had just driven in from New Jersey and gone to my office above the garage to complete a deal. One of your guys knocked at the door at 3.15. I thought it was you, Garrity, and sprang up from the computer. Your man Danny, the guy who had been around as long as you had, smiled at me. I hate this guy, said Danny, throwing away a coffee cup. We all hate him, said Garrett. You can always tell a lot by how someone smiles at you or how his eyes focus. Danny knew what you had both figured out, but you must have believed, short of a confession, you'd never have your killer. I suspected as I left the office and started down the stairs to the kitchen that you wanted to see if Connie and I were in this together. We weren't, but you guys may have thought we were. If you trailed us over the last two months, you would have known we were lovers. I was also vice president of sales in an official position. That's why she put me there so fast to cover our trail. I entered the kitchen without looking at her. And I know she wasn't looking at me either, but I wanted to look at her. I wanted to hold her hand or put my arm around her. Instead, I went right up to you. You had on a shot white skirt and a red sweater even in the hot weather. Danny was in short sleeves. Having that sweater on somehow annoyed me. But I smiled as I shook your hand. Business on your computer? asked Danny. I wondered if you had him check that out. Yeah, accounts. Accounts? You do have an office here, don't you, Butts? I installed that office right after my husband's death, Connie quickly told him. You look to your left. Her presence here was throwing you off. It was like watching a good pitcher be tormented by some idiot in the stands. No matter how hard he tried to get the ball over the plate, he's off by just enough to ruin his form. Why? Walter was gone. The company had to go on. Gordon is VP of sales. She had answered it all in a few words. There was nothing more to be said on that matter, and you knew it. You turned back to me. You work here a lot, Butts? I work where I have to work. It was as if she put those simple words in my head. The shorter and simpler, the better. I was learning not to be the wise-ass punk and be more the contrived conniver, capable of having murdered and capable of showing no guilt and my guilt had long since vanished. I relished my new role, and you could see that. You rose fast in this organization. I'm a hard worker. Walter recognized that. He made me sales manager. 
So I've been told by Mrs. Thornton. Now, don't either of you take what I'm about to say the wrong way. You seem embarrassed, Garrity, like the little boy talking about sex to his parents. Have you two ever carried on a sexual relationship? We are lovers, said Connie. I tried not to show my displeasure at her telling you that. We've been lovers for nine months. At that time, I was shocked that she'd tell you that. I was baffled and couldn't believe that Connie had been so stupid. It wasn't like her. Connie did nothing without seeing how it fit into a grand scheme. But her revelation to you about our relationship was brilliant. The news completely disarmed you, ruined your plan of attack, and made what you were about to say useless. Garrity nodded and then shook her head at the monitor. Damn. I see. You're in the cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Sojourners. Connie took one step closer to you. You fiddled with your notepad. This was going to be your bombshell, and she knew you had it. Yes, well, an intelligent investigator would wonder about your husband's death. I understand. She shut you down again. Just like we do in sales. State the objection. Acknowledge it. I knew what was coming next. A new solution. Fortunate my husband didn't know that another man made me happy in and out of bed. You were embarrassed, Garrity. Danny was pissed off. I'm still pissed off. You began talking about the coroner's report, the heart attack, and how Walter Thornton never should have been exerting himself. You asked me again, like you did in New Jersey, whether he wanted to go for help with me, and I answered simply, That is correct. You hinted at the cell phone disappearance, how no one had found Walter Thornton's phone. I said nothing. Connie never addressed it, and you didn't follow up about the phone or the nitro tablets. The silence intimidated you, Garrity. She intimidated you. She was attractive in her tennis outfit. Her legs were tight, her abdomen slim, and her arms lean with muscle. She could move mountains with her blue eyes, and she did. You backed off. That was your mistake back then, Garrity. You should have got her the hell out of there and started in on me. Just pushing me about the cell phone might have shaken me. But we knew you weren't going to push anybody. Maybe if you had direct physical proof of my having killed Walter Thornton, you would have pressed. Danny nodded slowly. You made some references to the company. I don't even know what the hell you were babbling about. She poured orange juice from a chilled glass pitcher and asked you or Danny if you wanted anything to drink. You shook your head and alluded to the fact that you'd still search for the cell phone. She didn't care. I hadn't told her anything, and I knew she took care of it. She knew that I was enough of a sleaze to have ditched that phone forever, just like the Nitro. I think on some level, she thrived on what I was capable of, in business and personally. You guys left through the rear atrium doors, shook hands, and started down toward the pool. You parked that unmarked maroon car near the pool house. You didn't know this, Garrity. I saw you step down the terrace. You were no more than 50 feet away from the kitchen. Connie laughed and backed up to the table. She grabbed my pants buckle and dragged me on top of her as she spread out over the table. The cloth moved and the pitcher spilled cold orange juice soaked to the fabric. And she kept laughing. It wasn't her usual social laugh. It was lower, longer, and deep from within her. As you returned to your car, Garrity, beyond the juniper trees, I had my pants dropped to the floor and rocked the wide table as I made love to her. The orange juice pitcher smashed on the kitchen tiles. I had intense times with her before and after, but nothing like what happened then. Nothing like the total envelopment. Maybe it was the risk. Maybe it was the table. 
Maybe I had tapped into some primal need within her and unleashed it in a sweaty physical form for over half an hour. And when it was over, I lay on the table. She walked bare-ass like that first day I saw her by the pool in the summer before, toying with me. I closed my eyes and then looked up at the ceiling. I caught the last glimpse of her legs as she rounded the living room archway. I lay back, knowing my future was intact, knowing you would never know the truth. With impunity and no discussion, and ever cognizant Connie understood that I had murdered Walter Thornton and would reap the benefits of his demise. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 14 The wedding, a diluted and quiet affair, took place in a small brick chapel in the Bahamas with a huge green glass stain scene above a simple wooden altar. Connie wore a short pink outfit with a gold belt and lots of jewelry. I found out later she had melted down Walter Thornton's wedding band and all the rings he had given her and remolded them into two new thin crisp rings for the ceremony. I stared around at the brick facade and the upper wooden buttresses and said what I had to say and married her. I didn't know the witnesses and not a single photograph was taken. We jetted off the island later that day. I never asked where I was going. I just followed her on the plane. She was charming during the whole honeymoon and made me feel like I was the only thing that mattered. I enjoyed the role and the unlimited credit card account in my wallet next to a wad of bills almost too thick to stuff inside. But I constantly rushed to plug holes in my conscious memory. In New Jersey, below the snow and the bare tree branches, Walter Thornton lay in a mahogany casket within a concrete vault six feet below the ground. I stood on a veranda and peered across the swimming pools within the palms and lush gardens ahead. A cluster of green fauna separated the pool and the ocean horizon. From behind, she put her hands on my shoulders and seemed to sense what I was thinking, probably even before I thought it. She rubbed my shoulders. She needed me. Things would be all right once we got back. Once I was working, and once I forgot about killing her husband. This is what I want to do. Connie said as if it were planned in her mind years ago, like something she knew as well as her own life story. I sipped the water, not the champagne, and looked around the seaside shanty in Barbados. I want more warehouses. You can do it, Gordon. You can motivate those men in the field. Make them perform. Push them. Intimidate them. Do whatever you have to do to support the warehouses. Where do we get the money? I asked, not quite sure how she'd pull off this elaborate plan. Oh, I have the capital. I have banks behind me. I was stunned how much legwork she had already done. You are my engine. You drive the business. Triangular boat sails, some white, some multicolored, silently traversed the blue bay outside the pane windows as I listened to Connie detail her business expansion plans. In her head was the output of both warehouses for the past year. In rapid succession, like guns sounding against an enemy position, she amazed me with an extemporaneous breakdown of each individual warehouse. Profits of the best items, and she categorized most of the profitable jobs for the year, and who sold them. Boats crossed the harbor and were replaced with a continuous round of new vessels. How do you know so much? I asked, not even drinking my champagne. Oh, come on, Gordon, I make it a point to know. That's the only way to achieve success. Maybe she had felt this way all along, but these ideas and feelings were now making an outward appearance. You went to Vassa. Your parents had money. My father was an investment banker. I'm what you might call the perennial spoiled child. 
My parents set high standards of achievements for me and my younger brothers and sisters, but they also provided the means for us all to achieve. I have one brother who has a doctorate and another who followed in father's footsteps, and my sister has her own software company on the West Coast. Yeah, my sister's married to a slob in Florida. They have six kids. What about your parents? Are they still alive? I asked. Yes, my father is retired, but not without influence. Mother died a year and a half ago. I'm sorry. I watched her eyes grow moist as she ran her index finger around the rim of the champagne glass. My mother was a unique woman. She never ran a business, but she raised a family. She gave us strength and was the woman behind the man. I think she always wanted to be in business, but my father was the one in charge. I didn't say anything, but I could see her mother's own pain living on. I could sense a lot of other things and was drawing sets of conclusions in my head. But I'm not a psychiatrist, Garrity. I only knew she was driven to do what she had to do. Just like I was driven for whatever went through my own thoughts. Connie had the ability to take those two dysfunctional forces and merge them into one forging system. I was in awe of her prowess. Before you met Walter, you worked corporately in New York, but I thought it was at the marketing level. It was. These specifics, I don't know them. No need for you to know. She avoided her track record as she spouted off more in numbers about the business, as if she were slicing apart a body during an autopsy. I wondered if she had done the same thing to Walter Thornton's company after she met him, or maybe before. And she was ambitious enough, and if I carried it further, I'd surely realize she could have dissected Gordon Butts at any time and plugged him right in the right corporate and personal holes. She was that overt. We have two warehouses. What more do you need? We? Well, the company. Expansion. That's the word for the next ten years or less, depending on how we grow the assets and establish our corporate base. I was afraid you might sell after Walter's death. Such a sudden death, you were about to say. Right. Well, it wasn't sudden, Gordon. Walter pushed the envelope too many times, forgetting his medicine or pushing himself like... You pushed him on that road. I beg your pardon? What I'm saying is that you should have had more damn sense than to try and hike across New Jersey. Without his cell phone, I can see how he was fully helpless. She knew. And that exchange was the only time that she intimated that she knew. Unlike everything else in Connie's life, that verbal blast wasn't planned. She messed up, barely dipping her hand to me. But Garrity, the woman, was a genius. I'm convinced that she knew my personality, she knew my ambition, and she knew how much I wanted her. She moved me along like a robot, tantalized me, promised me, used me, and showed me what else was out there. Subliminally and subtly, she had driven me to kill her husband and not even talked about it. It was clear as darkness fell over the harbor, I was just the first lieutenant. If I followed orders and did what I was told, I'd be a rich man. She would make me president of Walter Thornton's company. I didn't know how long that would take, but I would control everything and report only to her. That suited me just fine. People aren't one-dimensional, Garrity. Yeah, I killed somebody. Given the same circumstances, I'd do it again. But circumstances, like historical events, sometimes don't repeat themselves. I love Connie, and I gave myself personally and professionally. She knew that, too. She loved the flowers I'd send her at unannounced times or the cards and verses I might dream up. She remained remarkably attractive to me. 
Before we knew each other well, she must have known I was watching her, or maybe I had made some gesture or looked her over. With great sensitivity, she picked up on it. It was part of a composite that she strung together. She didn't sit down and say, I'm going to have somebody kill my husband today. I'll get a proxy to do it. She needed someone who could expand the business and take care of her physical needs. It all clicked into place like hunks of gas in space merging and forming a new system. The honeymoon seemed endless, but 17 days in the Caribbean was enough. Like a preset alarm going off inside her head, Connie suddenly informed me the plane was leaving at 5. She didn't order me, nor was she bitchy about it. She knew how to handle me, and she did it well. No pressure. I was always aware where my power came from. I never resented her back then. She had a definite plan for the next 10 years to send the company skyrocketing with several more warehouses, and she had the money behind her. I wasn't sure whether her father had some influence, but like everything else, I rode the wave and only needed direction. I welcomed the challenge and no longer thought about Walter Thornton dead in the ground. Framed by R.P. Fitton Chapter 15 You never gave up, Garrity. That occasional phone call would rattle me. I knew over the years that you went back to that dirt road where Walter Thornton had collapsed one sleety April day. I know how you backtracked my route from the highway dozens of times, and you must have spent nights tossing and turning, wondering where that nitro box was or what happened to the cell phone. I talked to you from our new Pittsburgh warehouse in 2014. As president of the company, it was my duty to make a swing through the area every few months and scare the hell out of everyone up there, especially the road salesmen. You kept mentioning the dumpster. It had been four years, but you understood the phone was discarded in the rubbish. You even said so. You never said that I put it there. You kept wearing me down with your stupid phone calls. One time you asked about my training in the Army and hinted that I shouldn't have pleaded mechanical ignorance on the scene about the car. And again, you mentioned the nitro box. I would get angry every time I hung up, and none of my people knew why. They didn't know you. Most of them had never met Walter Thornton. The accountants and managers knew Connie, but no one else did. They only understood that I was the president of the company. I remember walking from a smoky upper office and down the outside wood stairs into the Pittsburgh warehouse's expanse. I had just slammed down the phone. I hadn't heard from you in six months, and now you were bothering me again? If you were in front of me, Garrity, I would have shoved you down the stairs. Why didn't you just come out and say that I escorted Walter Thornton to the limit? I chucked the cell phone. I got rid of the pills. No, you let me sweat because you didn't have the physical evidence. What always calmed me down was the obvious fact that you'd never find it. We played this little game, bantering hints and innuendos back and forth. Usually my own anger was the worst thing to come out of our chats, but on my way back from Pittsburgh I panicked. Years had passed and I didn't want to live with a piece of evidence still lingering out there. I needed to go back to the spot of Walter Thornton's death and look for the nitro box. Maybe you had found it. Maybe not. I changed my flight, left early and landed in Philadelphia, and took a bus to Camden. I then used a company car from the northern New Jersey warehouse and headed up the highway. I could see a new maroon dumpster before I took the turn for Blanchard's shop. I drove on a summer's morning along the same road. It was paved now, but you already know that. 
I had trouble finding the exact area, the knoll and the rail fence. I kept thinking I was being followed, but no one was around. Then I recognized it. The cold, slippery morning flashed back and shook me. I felt the little green company car running, turned up the air conditioner and stepped into the heat. I dashed through the tall grass up to the rail fence. The brush, thickened in summer, scratched my spit-polished Italian shoes, and the dew from the night before brushed against my pinstripe suit. I searched for a half an hour, then an hour, pulling out the bushes by the roots and clawing back leaves with my bare hands. I threw my suit coat on a tree branch and kept turning around to the road each time a car raced by on the asphalt. I expected you to come flying up the street with the cruiser lights flashing. I couldn't find the nitro case. Damn it, I just couldn't find it. As I climbed over the rail fence, suit coat folded over my shoulder. A car approached quickly from the west, from the same direction I had driven from with Walter Thornton on that deadly morning. For a moment, I hesitated. It was just an SUV, a family with a canvas tied to their roof on vacation. A young blonde mother looked toward the fence and I froze. The car whooshed by and the sound of tires crackling over the hot tar trailed off to the east. Where the hell is that box? I said in a loud, direct voice across the silent, humid air. God damn it! God damn it! I went back, left my suit coat on the rails and stepped into the brush again. I spent another 15 minutes tearing the foliage apart. I went back, left my suit coat on the rails, and stepped into the brush again. I spent another 15 minutes tearing the foliage apart. I wasn't sure how long it would take to grow over, Garrity. If you had originally come out before the summer, you might have seen it. I gave up. I hopped the fence and ran back into the car. The cool air froze my soaked shirt and sweaty skin. I closed my eyes and gazed back to the fence. I shifted the car and accelerated out of the dirt, skidding onto the pavement. I drove non-stop back to the New Jersey warehouse. I hopped a bus back to Philly and made sure there was a record of me getting on an airplane. It was done by six. Nobody knew I was out on that road, but I figured you had the box. I was sure you'd written a scenario somewhere, maybe on your computer. You and perhaps some of your team were cognizant of what I did to Walter Thornton. But you still couldn't nail me. Connie was away with friends for a few days, and my old buddy, Tom Cowles, wanted me to hang out at Guido's. I almost called him and canceled. In retrospect, after what happened that night, I should have canceled. I hadn't seen Tom in five months, and hadn't stepped inside Guido's for a year and a half. I was living with the fact that you might confront me, Garrity. It grew inside me like a disease, feeding on my own insecurities and my own appetite to retain success. You see, Garrity... The money was flowing. My accounts were packed. My portfolio was diverse. I could have anything I wanted at any time. Go anywhere on a moment's notice. But I had to maintain it. I had pushed this company to a top-performing entity under my wife's guidance. It might all fall apart if I messed up or if you proved I killed Walter Thornton. I cruised my Jaguar through Tanglewood's front gate, heading toward New Jersey with an odd feeling I was going back to a simpler time when I was an unemployed smart-ass bum and nothing mattered. Back then I could walk into Guido's and be a nobody, and it didn't matter to any of the regulars or the bimbos. I might pick up some floozy and bring her back to the Bryant. I wanted so much and had gotten it, but with just as an intense emotion I feared I was losing it all. Hey, Gordon! Gordon! 
I released the heavy door and stepped into the stuffy, beer-laden smoke. Tom was heavier. Gray hair slipped out of his sideburns. He held some new microbrewery brown bottle in his hand. Few of the crowd from the old days turned. I got waves and a couple of smiles, but not for being president of Thornton Plumbing and Supply, just for being dumb Gordon Butts. Tommy, it's good to see you. I wondered if I should have worn the silk shirt and imported tie. Well, Mr. President, I must say it's an honor to have your presence here tonight. I'll cut it out. Where's the brew and the broads? Same old Gordon. I thought you were married. I am, and happy. How is Connie? She's fine. Fine, and things are booming out there for us, Tom. Tom put his arm around me and walked me over to the revamped bar. Bright red wood slats tilted upward toward a glossy black formica top. The mirror tiles were new, and the pink neon outline of Guido's gave the area a magenta tinge. I didn't recognize the bartender. Same old place, Gordy. With a new face. Tom put a microbrew in front of me. So how's Melody? Same old Melanie, still teaching school, and I'm moonlighting when I can. I was just thinking on the way over, sometimes I wish the old Gordon Butts were back here chugging him down. Tom almost spit out his beer. He looked as if he were putting away a few before I even arrived. Gordon, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to go back? Who knows? I said, checking out the crowd. The woman looked younger and the men looked like punks. It had been years since I hung out here. I was getting older. I looked into Tom's heavy blue eyes. Even his little mustache had a few gray strands. Tom, there's a lot of pressure associated with what I do. You want to talk about it? Yeah, maybe I do. We walked along the booths, just like the old days. I loosened my tie and held the beer as I sat across from my old friend in a corner booth. Sometimes the pressure gets to be too much. I wake up earlier and I'm hot with problems the minute the contractors and the plumbers start arriving at our warehouses. I'm like the Supreme Court, Tom. I'm the guy who's given all the difficult cases to resolve. You're the one with experience. I knew you were going places, Gordon. How did you know that? I just did. I nodded and sipped the full-tasting ale and smacked my lips. This is good stuff. Now tell me, why are you still moonlighting when there's work to be done? You could have hired me years ago. Business and friendship don't mix. Tom smiled and lowered his brows. I wondered if he was still miffed about my not getting him work. He never had much ambition and was content to mosey through life at his level. Not everyone is ruthlessly ambitious. I wondered if he ever suspected anything about Walter Thornton. Ruthlessly ambitious was more than an apt description. It was right on target. Tom started talking about his accounts all small, all boring, and all concerned with ledger columns. I scanned the bar, more like a restaurant now, and I studied the wide mirrors with hundreds of bottles lined up. I gazed at the people packed at the bar, the waitresses in their teal jerseys and beige pants, buzzed around with wide trays full of drinks and appetizers. I nodded appropriately. I knew how to appear interested, even with Tom. A small-framed waitress, fluffy dark hair and a spunky attitude, moved along the booths, I could hear her smooth voice, Garrity, and I liked the way she interacted with everyone. With friendliness, essential to being a waitress, and an effervescence unique to herself, Shannon McCurry stopped at our table. How's the Boston Ale? She asked as if she had known me all her life. Ah, this is really good. I'm surprised. Oh, surprised that a joint like this would have such good beer? <laughs> her laugh was spontaneous and affectionate. 
Now this joint and I go back a long way. Is he telling the truth, Tom? She asked. Shannon doesn't know this was your old watering hole, Gordon. She's been here, what, about a year, Shannon? Ten months. She extended her hand. It was a small hand with no nail polish, smooth with freckles like her face. I looked into her green eyes. Shannon McCurry. Gordon Butts. Take it you've uh, moved out of the area, Mr. Butts. Gordon, and you can take that correctly. Gordon is the president of Thornton Plumbing and Supply, said Tom. I made a real sour face, but smiled quickly, not wanting to seem grumpy to the smiling woman in front of me. Tom, Shannon doesn't care about titles. I like titles and important men. I wasn't sure whether she was being sarcastic. Well, I don't know how important I am. I guess we're all as important as we think we are. Again, she hit the mark. If I was single and not in the position I was in, I would have asked her out. I know she sensed what I was feeling. She scooped up the empty bottle and put her hand on my shoulder. Another Boston? Sold. Something to go with it? Cheese sticks, I answered. I watched her scoot away. She was so unassuming, the opposite of Connie, but I decided if she was out of her waitress garb, she might be very attractive. She was still attractive, not just her slim body, but the way she brought everybody to life. I knew I was sorely in need of being recharged. I looked at her, refilling her tray back at the bar, talking to the bartender and laughing. She loved people and loved being with them. Gordon, uh, maybe you and Connie need to get away, said Tom. I looked away from Shannon. If Tom knew I was staring at her, he didn't say anything. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Break the routine. Thanks, Tom. I'm going to mention that to her when she gets back. Shannon swung the tray with the ale and the cheese sticks. I brought my eyes to the ball game on the overhead monitor. Maybe she had caught me looking at her. I should have been more careful. I could look all I wanted, maybe even imagine myself taking her out of here, but I wasn't going to do it. I was going back to Tanglewood to wait for Connie's morning arrival. To Boston, two sticks. You sound like a hockey player, I said. She raised her dark, precise brows. Her eyes glowed. I like hockey. All sports. My brother was a hockey player. And another time I would have planned to bring her to a hockey game, or any game, just to be with her. Ever get into the city for games? Are you inviting me to a game, Mr. Butts? She asked, turning down her lips like a little girl. Oh, well, I, I bet you'd be a lot of fun at a game. I have to warn you, I'm a vociferous fan. I root, root, root for the home team. Now would have been the time to ask her. I really wanted to ask her. I wanted to be with her, Garrity, but I didn't want to jeopardize my position. I didn't want Connie remotely knowing I considered cavorting with some kid in her early 20s. Maybe she sensed the power and money now a part of my entourage. Well, when they're skating on the ice, I'll get you tickets. That got me off the hook. Really? I didn't understand why she wanted to go to a hockey game with a guy at least 10 years older. But she wasn't overly attracted to me, I thought. But I couldn't tell. I didn't know how to read her at all. Maybe she just wanted to have fun and be out and about. If I had never come back to Greedo's, I wouldn't have to worry about seeing her again. But I wanted to see her again. It was like Connie when I first saw her bare ass by the pool. Shannon McCurry wasn't in any position of power for me to conquer. Maybe all I wanted was the happiness she seemed to possess. Somebody called her from another table. She grinned at me and moved along. Connie wouldn't take kindly to you. Tom, I'm not taking that kid anywhere. She's just a kid. Can't be more than 20. Early 20s. I looked at her small hips. This wasn't a sexual thing, or maybe it was. 
Sex goes beyond the obvious physical endowments. I summed it up right there, Garrity. This woman must have been a dynamo in bed. She had to be. I look back at Tom. I'll never see her again, and I'm not bringing her anywhere. Tom smiled and rolled his eyes. Well, she broke up with her boyfriend. He used to come in here, what a bum, on drugs half the time. She finally booted him the hell out of her life, but he caused her a lot of trouble, boy. She doesn't look like the type who would get stuck on some druggie. You know as well as me, Gordon. If we fall for somebody, it doesn't matter what baggage they're carrying. I nodded and sipped the ale. Well, that's for damn sure. So what else are you doing for excitement? asked Tom. Work. I was in uh, Pittsburgh this morning. It never ends. In the corner of my eye, I saw Shannon sweep around the rear tables. You know, I have to play the hard ass. Right up your alley, Gordon. Only now you have the power to go with it. I felt anxiety dripping like an intravenous attachment into my bloodstream. The old fence, the tiny knoll, and the image of Walter Thornton lying down in the mud rocketed back into my mind. I saw his polished gray gravestone with the name Thornton chiseled across the rock. Sometimes uh, you have to earn the respect of your employees without pissing them off. That's right. Shannon was back at the bar filling a tray. I knew how much I could impress her, both with my bankroll and position, but my head snapped back. I wasn't going to go out with her. I guess I need a manager of some sort, some guy I can send out while I'm poolside. Let him be the bastard. I'm sick of responsibility. I'm sick of being the son of a bitch. Excuse me, is this Gordon Butts in front of me? I smiled and poured my Boston into the glass. Yeah, too much. I can't handle it. Oh, get away, Gordon. Relax. Change your agenda and priorities. Then you won't be feasting your eyes on the younger set. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 16 Connie was precise and unbending when she flew back into town. She was away and must have done too much thinking. Her friends had made their usual uninformed suggestions, and once implemented, would take six months to straighten out. Not only did she desire more warehouses, but she sounded extremely confident. Opening a new facility required more than just leasing a building, filling it with supplies, and opening the front door. Planning, advertising, and hiring the right people and stocking the right items for the geographic area were vital components. She understood all those concerns, and I wondered if she were on some level trying to shake me, because, Garrity, I was shaken. You're always the one who's done the background work. You and your team know facts and figures about everything before you do it, I told her. And I know more warehouses will increase our net worth, and it will make the existing warehouses more productive. How do you plan to do that? I don't. You'll do it. More plans from your girlfriends? You know, Gordon, you're a good executor, but you never had the moxie to plan the larger picture. I can send you out with marching orders and you execute them perfectly, but you don't go much beyond that, do you? Maybe not. I have projections on the computer, Gordon. I want ten fully stocked warehouses by the end of the year. Be a dear, will you, and go over all that? I didn't like your attitude, Garrity, and I didn't hide my anger. Oh, you be a dear. It's crazy. We don't have to keep expanding at this level. Maybe if you had been to college, Gordon or even taking the most rudimentary business course, you'd be aware of our cash flow and how we have to expand. This just isn't some whim or suggestion. It's vital. I looked at her tight face and flowery jumpsuit. She was aging a bit, but that wasn't the problem. The problem with Connie was brewing for some time. 
I didn't care what she said about the business aspects of her new edicts. She was probably annoyed with her own success, admired in her own money and position, and bored. Yet I cautioned myself. Boredom was below Connie. She was much too smart for that. She must have seen other things brewing, and maybe she was right. I couldn't see the larger picture. She still made love with a fiery passion, leaving me buzzing for days. And the frequency never diminished, either. But as I traveled between warehouses, Garrity, I racked my brain trying to figure out why she continued to press me and why she fought so hard for expansion. I finally resolved to stay clear, go through my daily routines and not question what she might have in mind. When I was anywhere near New Jersey, a new compulsion began to consume me. And it could have been because of Connie's continual pressure. I drove off the interstate for the Mavisville Road, the road where I had marched Walter Thornton to his untimely death. I was now fated to travel that road again and again, always wondering about Walter Thornton's nitro case. Sometimes I'd stop and climb the knoll and check the fence just to see if the undergrowth I had yanked out from the ground had grown back. I repeated this ritual countless times as Connie became more dictatorial. Personally, she was charming, but it was as if she were deliberately trying to get under my skin and make me want to get out of the business. Slowly, I began to see what she was up to. We both had enough money to last a lifetime, and the expanding business only added assets to what we didn't need. But in the competitive business world, the company needed cash flow. She was able to separate our personal and business lives in the past, but her finesse was waning. In October, Tom called me again on the phone. He had bugged me about tipping a few beers with him at Guido's. I finally found a free Wednesday evening and planned an overnight in New Jersey. Being back at Guido's again gave me the illusion of shedding my personal and business difficulties. I leaned back in the booth and filled my veins with beer from the tap. From an accountant's point of view, stripping away all the personal commitments, Tom summed it up. She's getting ready to sell. I refused to believe it at first. Tom, how can you say that? The company is Connie's life. It's what she's worked for. Can't imagine her dumping it all. For what? What would she do? I don't know what's going through her head personally, Gordon, but I'm telling you, the move is classic. Beef it up and dump it. The more I looked at it, the more I realized Tom might be right. Where would that leave me? With no company, she wouldn't need me as her first lieutenant in the field. I felt threatened, Garrity. Threatened as much as I had when Walter Thornton used to grate on my nerves. Well, I don't want to talk about the company right now. You didn't take a break, like I told you the last time we were in here. I looked around, stopping my eyes on each waitress, but I didn't see Shannon McCurry. Last time we were here... Last time we were here, you were drooling over that waitress, Shannon. She leave? Go back with her boyfriend? No, he's gone. She probably has the night off. I looked around again and checked the clock. Shannon would be working right now. She wasn't on tonight. You want her, Gordon. I know the look. She's a nice kid. Yeah, I wouldn't mind taking her out. Don't be a jerk. As I told you before, you'll risk it all. I really don't give a shit right now, Tom. I've achieved what I want to achieve. I just don't care. I went out the next morning. From the New Jersey warehouse, I traveled and met with my employees like I did all during the fall months. But more and more as winter approached, I sensed Connie was going to ditch all my efforts. Just listening to Tom or making wild speculation didn't get me the truth, and I was afraid to ask her directly. She would lie if she thought I was onto something or attempting to disrupt her plans. 
I wanted to defy her intimations about me not seeing the larger picture. But what could I do, Garrity? She held all the assets. She controlled the locations, the revenue, the reinvestment, the dividends. She set my salary. I can always pick out dates when things start rolling in my life. It was November 29th, after Thanksgiving. I was still half asleep after an afternoon social affair at Tanglewood. I had played my part well as president, but I hadn't seen much of Connie. The night reminded me so much of the night Walter Thornton offered me the position of sales manager. We had spent 45 minutes rolling in the sheets. Then the light popped on. You know, Gordon, I was just pleased that the profits out of New Jersey never reached our projections. Her projections? I want an explanation. I got out of bed. Why was she bringing this up after we made love? I was feeling relaxed, but could feel the tension building in my shoulders and back. For a few minutes, I kept my eyes closed, and then I turned and saw her sitting up in bed, glasses balanced on her tiny nose as she flipped through the company reports. She was trying to annoy me. Why would anyone do this after making love? I really don't think this is the time, Connie. She looked up slowly, and I had never seen such hatred in her eyes. You better make the time, Gordon. I don't understand. No, I don't think you do. I don't think you have a very good memory. I still remember the lowly salesman kissing my husband's butt. I couldn't believe the words came out of her mouth. I thought back to a happier time when she plotted the business, but wasn't consumed by it. Are you planning on selling the business? What? She threw the reports across the covers and stood naked before me with her fingers firmly planted on her hips. Somehow that compact little body didn't mean as much right now. Just who do you think you are, Gordon? President of Thornton Plumbing and Supply. Somebody who just might want to know what the hell is going on. If his company is being sold out from under him. His company? My husband built this company. I'm your husband, and you seem to have conveniently forgotten that fact, except when it's time for a roll in the sack. You sound like some woman complaining a man is using her body. She laughed, and a lower-sounding voice resonated deep from within her. Oh, Gordon, I may sell the company. You just do what you're told. I didn't know it at the time, but I'd never make love to her again. I said nothing. I walked into the shower and then dressed ten minutes later. I cruised through the bedroom, but she wasn't there. Not that I cared where she went. It wasn't even nine o'clock when I opened the hall door and headed downstairs. I saw no lights on down there and picked up my leather coat. It was a frigid, star-speckled night as I walked outside, and I hesitated for a few minutes in the cold, putting my hands in my pockets as I looked toward the bedroom window. A moment later, the light went off. I turned and maneuvered myself in the darkness until I found my jag in the garage. I backed out, headlights swung over the grounds, and I realized just how angry I was with Connie. It was so bizarre, I thought, as I drove through the gate, why she would take out the account sheets after making love. I shifted the car, gripping the stick like I was going to break it, but I never spun the tires. I accelerated out of the main gate just as it opened and headed for the shore. As I drove east, the crescent moon's reflection moved steadily along the rippling waters, and my emotions careened out of control. I knew I had been used. I knew that from the first, but it never bothered me until now. I downshifted at the corner, wishing I were far removed from the situation. The power associated with running the company meant nothing now. 
needed it having Connie and all the perks. The money was a cold, impersonal commodity, as cold as Walter Thornton's body frozen in the ground that night. It wasn't guilt I felt for killing Walter Thornton. I was regretful I made the move only because it wasn't right for me right now. I guess that's the center of selfishness for a murderer, and murder is a selfish act. Walter could be alive now if his heart didn't get him later, and she wouldn't have the unrestrained power. I left the shore road and moved on to the highway. I didn't think she was having an affair, but I didn't rule it out. I could get out of this real simple, Garrity. The answer was before me like the ever-present moon slice. Walk out, don't come back, let Connie play her power games. Even though I was convinced she knew I caused her husband's death, I didn't think she could prove it. I raced up the highway ramp and brought the engine up to 120. Nobody was on the road. I continued for a few miles and then took my foot off the pedal. I shifted and kept a steady 80 as I headed toward the city. It never occurred to me, as I saw the lighted skyline, that I was going to Guido's. Some part of me realized I was returning to Crane's Beach the second Connie turned off the bedroom light. I also must have known that I was on a one-way trip to seek out Shannon McCurry, the bubbly little waitress Tom and I had met a few months back. I drove by my old apartment at the Bryant, thinking of the days when I didn't have to worry so much about everything. The place looked quiet and a little run down. Life isn't worth worrying about, Garrity. You keep worrying and the pressure mounts. And for what? What the hell is it worth getting yourself backed into a corner? And I was backed into a corner. I circled the old brick building and headed down the alley shortcut to Guido's. It was 10.30 on a Thursday night and I was parked out front. I didn't think consciously about Shannon McCurry until I put my hand on the brass handle and opened the heavy wooden door. The bar had a good crowd. Music pumped out of the speakers and the bass shook my chest. I scanned the bar. Four waitresses were on duty that night, each clad in the same teal uniform with beige slacks. I sat at the bar, straddled a stool, and ordered a light beer. The music petered out and I watched a hockey game on the sports channel. The bartender slid the mug under the counter and I sipped the cold beer into my mouth. I didn't know the bartender. Shannon on tonight. Shannon? he asked. Great, she had probably long since left this place. And why should I be here thinking about this kid? Maybe it was because of her outgoing personality, or maybe the fact that nothing seemed to bother her when I was so bothered. The bartender talked to one of the other waitresses. The curly, blonde-haired woman nodded and said something about Saturday night. When the bartender relayed the message back to me, I chuckled. Coming back here to see this young woman was ludicrous. I had enough money to have a new woman every night for years. Maybe because it was so outlandish. Maybe because it made no apparent sense to put the moves on a woman 12 years my junior. I looked around the bar like an assassin. I smiled at the thought of defying Connie in her bed covered with account reports, plans for expansion, and the never-ending pressure. Saturday night was only 48 hours away. I would execute it well, come in maybe a little later than now, and near the time Shannon would get off work. I didn't care if she had a boyfriend or if she was married. I had the thought that something had connected between us that night a few months back, but I never had the need to pursue it until now. When Butts marries Connie, Garrity, we can assume, must have been thoroughly convinced of Butts' guilt. But she and the team have nothing to pin on Butts, who is now subject to Connie being in charge. 
She says that butts is her engine. Whoa, double entendre there if I ever heard one. Now he knows that she is spoiled, her father was an investment banker, she went to Vassar, and all her siblings are mega successful. And Connie lives with some odd curse about her mother. Funny how Butts didn't care about all these resume enhances when he was coveting the whole deal. And Connie hints that she knows what Butts did to Walter Thornton. Butts is trapped now, and after all the conquering, we see the overt deceit in Gordon Butts' character. Some young thing, a waitress in a bar, is now consuming his every thought. He wants her. He wants her by his side as he wants Walter Thornton's company. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon. This is Robert P. Fitton, minding my own business, making up stories. And this story is about to get a little bit more complicated in episode four. Tune in to Debauchery 101 with Gordon Butts. I'm out of here. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.pizzazz.com.